welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. While certainly not attracting the ire of, say, estate agents or used car salesmen, there's no doubt that the profession of musicologist is one that's attracted a fair amount of suspicion from the average music listener over the years, with the conductor Thomas Beecham's famously acerbic comment that a musicologist is someone who can read music but can't hear it still ringing true for many. Well, one man who is attempting to change these preconceptions is the creator of a YouTube channel called Cult of Musicology, featuring videos in which his musicological musings are delivered from what looks like a very comfy chair. But he also practices what he preaches, being a teaching fellow in music at the Royal Holloway, University of London. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dan Elphick. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. On the show today, we're going to be discussing current musicological thoughts behind the so-called canon of classical music, the influence that musicologists have on the classical music we hear and the musicians that play it, and Dan's own particular research interests, which currently lie in music written behind the Iron Curtain. But first of all, Dan, what does a musicologist do? What made you want to become one? And what was the idea behind your Cult of Musicology YouTube channel? I love the question of what does a musicologist do? Gosh. (laughs) Um, In a a very simple sense, this is uh, the scholarly investigation of music or sound in its broadest possible sense. So I say scholarly investigation. It's not necessarily somebody that works in a university. They're independent scholars as well. Uh, And somebody doesn't have to be writing books. They can still just be teaching or they could be presenting publicly. So there's a range of activities that go into it. That's probably the safest definition of musicology I can give. There are much, much bigger ones. But let's stick with that. In what made me want to become a musicologist, I suppose I go back to my own university training. First, I thought I was going to be a composer and and I failed at that. Then I did a master's in piano performance. I had a wonderful piano tutor, uh, Tatiana Iskandarova, at Kiel University, where I did my master's degree. And we specialised in in Russian repertoire especially. And I just became fascinated, really obsessed. And I thought I wanted to go into further study, but I really wanted to get under the, the bonnet of this music, really have a proper look. And I switched to musicology for my PhD. A bit of a change, but I absolutely fell in love with it, really. And as for the Cult of Musicology YouTube channel, well, it might be familiar for listeners to know that obviously uh, with the pandemic, university teaching, as with all teaching, moved online. So overnight, university teachers had to become familiar with video editing, with making podcasts, all this wonderful technological stuff. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. Well, it's been a lovely, it's been a lovely discovery, really. I, I put a lot of time and effort and I really wanted to make a, a something that students might want to re-watch, really. So kind don't quite want to say entertainment value, but have something that had value from re-watching it. And that got praised, and then I thought, well, I watch too much YouTube anyway. And there's a great amount of music theory YouTube if you go out there. There's fantastic creators on YouTube. When it gets to the scholarly study of music, you sometimes get a bit limited to either university departments trying to plug their courses or orchestras trying to plug their concerts with a resident musicologist. And I wanted to come out with something that was, you know, a little bit close to what music theorists are doing of this is trying to sell people what musicology is. Maybe for young people, it's trying to convince this is, you know, why doing a music degree, why studying musicology is a really good idea. Uh, so, So that's the thinking behind it. The musicologist for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Of course the, it is. The, people, the people's musicologist, Dan. One, yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, a current hot topic today and the subject of one of Dan's videos is a debate around the canon of classical music. For the uninitiated, what is the canon of classical music? Oh, what a question. Okay. Um, the canon is a way of teaching and thinking about classical music. So it's a kind of imaginary list of must-hear music 
or composers. So if you imagine, you know, a hundred pieces you have to listen to before you die or something like that. This list, as it actually exists, changes person to person. So there isn't really an agreed list anywhere, though I'm sure we could think that there are overlapping composers who'd come up pretty much every time. Maybe that kind of thinking in lists makes sense for absolute beginners. You've got to start somewhere. Um, and if somebody, for whatever reason, feels like they don't have a lot of time on their commute to work or something, they've, they've got to start with something. So start with something that lots of people hold to be the best. But this becomes a bit of an issue once you get to know more and more music. Because there is an implication, so some scholars argue, that the, the stuff in the canon list could be better or more important than other music. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because musical taste is entirely subjective. Um, the, the things that I like might not necessarily be the things that any listeners might like. And there isn't any evidence scientifically to say that this is the best music. There is perhaps a historical case for this. That is, over time, lots of people in the past have held this music to be important for multiple reasons. And there's a long discourse to say um, that students uh, should be aware of. But that still doesn't mean that it's objectively the best music, if that makes sense. So in a way, the idea of canon and critiquing that is academics overthinking the idea uh, that there is music that everybody should know. What are, your, what are your, some of your supposed solutions to this problem? Well, the solutions, I suppose, stem from the problems first, if I start with that. Perhaps the biggest problem with this idea of canon is that we don't necessarily think about how stuff got into it, who, who put this list together. There's relatively little acknowledgement that this is a, a list of composers and pieces that was built. It was constructed by people, lots of people over time, and in sort of common agreement. But it was chosen to reflect particular values of the people who were putting it together at that time. So I'm speaking very sort of rough generalisation, but beginning from around the mid-19th century and not really before. Almost entirely the people doing this, they're nearly all men. They're nearly all uh, white Europeans. So their kind of values, individuality, self-reflection, diligence and hard work. We can see this in some of the, uh, the music. We should remind ourselves, though, that anything that was built by humans can be changed. Anything, and as I said, the actual list of that canon is forever changing. Think about how Mahler was barely played in the decades after his death, and then we saw a Mahler revival, and now, of course, he's the sort of bread and butter of orchestral repertoire. The pieces that these 19th century critics chose to especially celebrate resonated, pun intended, um, resonated with them and their values. There's nothing wrong with this, per se. We all do this in the music that we enjoy. It resonates, it speaks to us. But in some ways, we've forgotten about these critics and early musicologists, and now we have an acceptance that the pieces and their composers in the canon are there because they are objectively brilliant pieces, rather than because they were perhaps the most played pieces at particular points in time, or perhaps that future composers thought they were important and they might take influence from them. I don't want anybody to get me wrong, I still think they're pretty much all brilliant pieces that I love and enjoy, but thinking canonically puts a limit on our musical enjoyment. It provides a limit of how much we explore, and especially music by living composers. So if we present music by 19th century composers as the best, the must-know, when are we going to get round to exploring contemporary music by the people who make their livelihoods from composing today? So that was problems and <laughs> solutions, which I promised I'd get to. <laughs> There's maybe two pathways... And there's probably a middle ground, but I'm not sure about that. Two pathways. One, we try to expand the canon, the stuff that's regularly performed, perhaps hoping to reflect more of our diverse modern society, uh, perhaps bringing in more living composers, perhaps more composers from diverse backgrounds. 
and perhaps even discussing the kind of roots, um, colonial origins of this kind of canonic thinking. So we try to expand. Or the second solution is much harder. Uh, we might discuss, think about how we completely get rid of the canon altogether. That's a radical step. And I'm immediately going to try and clarify that step. <laughs> In that this music, if we think of, I don't know, Beethoven, Wagner, Rossini, whoever, this music continues to exist without the idea of ranks or lists of the best music. As the brilliant scholar Dr. Imani Mosley put it recently, the canon is just one container for this music, out of many others. We can and we should be able to teach and enjoy this music and any other music without an emphasis on putting it into a kind of hierarchy. In my opinion, I think we should be doing both of these things, expanding and trying to move beyond. Um, but that's where my thinking, at least, currently is. Is this actually um, helped by the way, the changing way that we can discover and consume music now? It's just as easy to go to Google and type in a name of an unknown composer as it is to Beethoven. Is technology actually helping this uh, to make the canon meaningless effectively? Hmm. Um, so I'm not that old, but uh, I think accessibility <laughs> of recordings has helped in that I remember trying to track down CDs of Weinberg in the 2000s, and that was extraordinarily hard at that point. So I think accessibility recordings has made it easier, tremendously easy in ways, to discover composers and music you might not have known before, stuff off the beaten path. And again, I know stories and colleagues about mail-order vinyl catalogues and stuff like that, uh, secretly trading vinyls across the Iron Curtain <laughs> to, to find more obscure composers. So there's, there's pros and cons of streaming that uh, of financial models and things like that perhaps I won't go into, but they do at least bring tremendous catalogues of repertoire. It's interesting about this concept of repertoire, though, for me, um, because we might separate recorded versus live performance repertoire. Recording is its own thing. It's an expensive thing to produce. It takes a lot of time and investment from performers, uh, producers, etc. But once it's done, it exists, I mean, theoretically, um, forever. <laughs> live performances are fleeting, time-based, and, you know, you need to repeat them if you want to hear it again, or you transfer it into a recording. While these recordings are ever expanding our horizons, I think there is some way to go in live performances. Look at our major orchestras or our opera houses and how many female composers or composers from ethnically diverse backgrounds that they feature, or even just living composers. While recordings give us the impression of moving beyond the canon step by step and these fantastic uh, expansion, uh, the live performance repertoire paints a very different picture, I think. There's a growing disparity now between the music that we can expect to encounter on CD, on download, and the music that we're hearing in the concert hall. One has remained quite conservative, perhaps, and yet the other one is now venturing off into realms unknown and terra incognita. Yeah. I um, I mean, I understand this. I used to work in a concert hall, so I understand, you know, to use the phrase bums on seats, of, of what's going to be crowd pleasers, and also what will get people who are perhaps curious uh, on classical music to bring them in as well. There's tremendous value in music that is guaranteed to, to bring audiences in. Yeah, I think that's probably the suspicion of musicologists by general listeners that we sort of somehow judge listening preferences. And I'm trying to push against that. <laughs> really not. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, recordings, of course, you can have this luxury of expanding repertoire. And while you might bring that into your live performances, there's probably a, a, you know, a financial and a practical element that we need to have an element in a concert programme that will definitely bring people in as well. There's all sorts of considerations here. Perhaps we could say it's the concert hall is sort of at the end of the chain and what you're doing is at the start of the chain and it takes a while for 
you, this expansion of the repertoire to feed through into the concert hall, and we're, that process is happening, but obviously it's not. We're not, we're not there yet. Yeah, I think that's probably giving too much credit to the kind of things I do. Um, but <laughs> I think the idea that the concert chain, the concert hall, could be the end of a chain. I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. Well, you're currently teaching a course based on a list compiled of the canon at the end of the 19th century. Are students less canon aware these days? And is that necessarily a good thing or, or a bad thing? Good question. Um, so, yeah, I'm teaching a course. I have to admit it was designed by a colleague of mine, Professor Paul Harper Scott. Uh, this is a course which we've called imaginatively a history of the 19th century in 100 <laughs> musical works. Um and it's not... Put that on a book and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> and this this has come from a position that, yeah, if I go into a, a, a university seminar room and I'm, I'm passionate about teaching students, you know, these concepts that interrogate the canon and, and want to expand further, and then I find out that these students don't actually know the canonic repertoire to begin with, uh, it's kind of a pointless endeavour um, <laughs> in some ways. And it says something about sort of um, music education and things like that. Not that I think things have gotten worse or anything like that. I think things have changed in the sense of, I think probably it changed even before I was studying. I'm in my 30s. But at one point there was a way of, of teaching music, which was, this is the list of stuff you should know. And here we go. These tr academic trends of critiquing canon then came in to dismantle some of that. If I then come in and tell that to my students without really checking that they know the canon to begin with, it's it's a bit... Um, they don't understand the criticism because they don't understand what's, what it's a criticism of. Yeah, I think students still understand. I give them that credit. But it's just, from my <laughs> point of view, it's just a, a slightly odd way to do it. So this is 100% a course of, here is the repertoire. You need to know this. I'm telling them that. But it's paired with, and this is then the critical stuff. So they have both at once. And um, it's not my list of what I think the top 100 pieces are. We've gone to the three most commonly used textbooks, indexed the most referenced pieces, uh, and then presented those in order of how often they are mentioned. So there's a surprising amount of Maya beer, for instance. Um, and yeah, I've shared the uh, list on my social media, and it's divided opinion. Uh, 56 <laughs> operas in 100 works. Oh, goodness me. Uh, almost, I, th I can't remember if there's one, but I think there's very few concertos, for instance. It's a very interesting uh, list. And yeah, that's with the viewpoint that if we're going to keep going on with this, it's interesting that students might not feel comfortable with this kind of repertoire. But as soon as we get uh, then to looking at the wider classical world, orchestras, recordings, programming, etc., it's still very much embedded. So in some ways, I'm bringing students up to speed and then critiquing it straight after. There's perhaps, it's like in history in general, there's been a temptation to present classical music as a narrative. Uh, Bach, begat Haydn, begat Beethoven, etc., etc. And that makes it easy to ignore composers who don't fall into the narrative of begatting, begatting, begatting. Um, yeah, absolutely. And also, it's just not the way history works. Um, so that would be goal-oriented history, that history is a sort of straight line, um, rather than, you know, millions of avenues that we can't possibly um, we can't possibly explore. Also, the fact that history—not to go back to this again—but history isn't objective. History isn't necessarily scientific. It's stories that we choose to tell to understand particular things. So it makes sense that we would tell that story about composers linking to each other and following on from one another. That's a convincing story. Again, I think there's probably value in that story to just sort of get your head around. Okay, so so what is the story of classical music? Just to begin, find a way in. 
And it's then when you get to to really getting on getting to grips with things, though, you might see oh, actually there's there's so much extra here that perhaps we need to think of it in a different way. Well, in the past few years, we've seen an amazing number of obscure composers finally get their works recorded. How do musicologists work with musicians to unearth and record music that hasn't been recorded before? <laughs> it's a lovely question. Um, I have tremendous respect and admiration for performing artists. As I mentioned, I, I trained as a performer and now I'm not one. So so me as a musicologist, I love to go on and on about music, but I don't actually produce any in any meaningful way. Um it's key that musicologists and performers work together, though. There has to be communication from both sides. It's essential. Indeed, some of the very best performers that I know are themselves excellent musicologists, of course, and vice versa. And I should just add that without performances or recordings, the music that we like to talk about just can't really exist in a useful way. Uh, it's the lifeblood of what we do. But when it comes to, you know, advocating previously unheard music, it can be a slow process. Say, for example, if a scholar discovers a, a long-forgotten manuscript, to begin to get it into the hands of a performer, never mind trying to sort of persuade performers about it, still going to need things like typesetting, so turning it into a readable practical score. So often that means working with a music publisher, or sometimes musicologists are taking that upon themselves as well. That's quite time-consuming very often, especially if we get to an orchestral score that can be very expensive if you go to a publisher. And even then, maybe nobody will be interested as well, quite frankly. <laughs> Before then, there's the issue of reaching performers. So, you know, it helps if you really believe in the value of the music you're trying to fight for. It depends how much enthusiasm scholars put into their projects. And that's not to say that projects that don't materialise were a result of any kind of lack of enthusiasm. As anyone who's tried to bring projects together knows, we can be as passionate as we want about rare music, but it still might never find an audience. So I think there's a lot of a lot of hard work by performers and and maybe academics, but there's also luck that goes in it as well. Whether music finds its audience, whether an audience finds that music as well, I, I do hope though that every time I speak publicly about some of the more obscure music that I love, I want that passion and interest to come across. So if there's anything about music, and I'm sure we've all encountered this in podcasts on radio. In concerts, that one person's passion and enthusiasm, I hope, can be a little bit uh, infectious, to use the term. <laughs> a good kind of infectious. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and of course, again, with technology, is there a way now of uh, enabling people to listen to music without it actually being played by, by a performer? So it's some sort of digital way of letting people experience it without an actual performance. Yes, Um I mean, so listeners might know about notation softwares, the Sibelius or Finale are two famous ones. They can you you can input the the music notation like it was a word processor, and then it can play it back to you. And there's now quite sophisticated software where you can upgrade that into even nicer sort of synthesized versions. Um, and this is happening with some really obscure repertoire now. To use an example, um, the composer Kaikoshu uh, Shapoji Sarabji. Uh, who certainly divides opinion, he has <laughs> extremely complicated works for orchestra that might last three hours or so. So there's the question of typesetting it, but <laughs> how on earth are you going to persuade an orchestra to take this on where who knows what the audience for it is? But we have an idea of what we might call realised versions, if that makes sense. They're sort of synthesised and we have an impression of what it sounds like. Uh, and that's really useful for that kind of repertoire. Or is it going to make, hopefully not going to make real life orchestras redundant? 
Uh, I don't think at this point. You you have an awareness listening through that it's not it's not the real deal. I don't think anyone's going to be contacting their union just yet. <laughs> Is there a temptation to follow academic trends in terms of research, and does that eventually filter down to the recording studio? I mean, so we, yeah, there, there certainly are academic trends and things like that. I think it's it's there's a certain amount of cynicism in both ways. I think very few academics genuinely go and follow. Uh, trends as they happen <laughs> it so happens that somebody's research but once you're following a trend the trend is probably over anyway isn't it? Oh, quite right yeah i think it's more that uh, a scholar has been working for years decades and suddenly what they're what they're working on is is really urgent and topical and it's right that you know for us to be talking about it at that particular time and perhaps more people want to show that they are interested in supporting and that's probably how a trend manifests itself um but really anything that becomes a sort of academic trend so you you know Talking about Canon, for instance, this has been going on at least 40 years, but really a lot longer as well. Um, and it's the result of many scholars trying to interrogate these things. So I think there's the appearance of trend. I'm sure there are people who try and sort of signal their support at, at you know, good moments. But behind every single one, there is a lot of hard work. And and with also with music that is well known, do musicologists work with musicians on interpretations of pieces? Absolutely. Um, so this is a really interesting thing that you might uh, hear about. M- many um, university departments do research symposia, public talks open to the public. And very often you might get these kind of interplay, these exchanges between musicologists and performers, kind of workshop sessions. So, I mean, classic examples would be where there are multiple published editions of a score that differ. Um, so I mean, if I use the example of Beethoven, uh, where maybe the manuscript source is unclear, or maybe there were multiple editions published during Beethoven's lifetime, it makes quite a bit of difference about, you know, something as simple as tempo, questions about tempo in Beethoven's pieces. And there might be a scholarly viewpoint of, oh, you know, what's a suitable middle ground, what might be the best uh, take here, just as much as there are complex music- musicological queries as they are questions of musical performance really, an interpretation. And sometimes we might get to a point where we say, well, actually, the musical interpretation uh, perhaps takes precedence or something like that. Obviously, there's a there's a, a tempo many of us are used to hearing in something like um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And sometimes if we take tempo indications very literally, that can be really interesting, but very surprising as well. Th- th- that coming together is really interesting with performers, but also scholarly viewpoint. And as I said earlier, many performers are on the cutting edge of this kind of research themselves, so that the lines are very, very blurred. There's not a sort of clear separation uh, between them. Because the performers have to find a middle ground between what the musicologists might think is the right is the right tempo, in inverted commas, and what the public are expecting to hear. Quite right, yeah. I think it's about um, presentation. Like I said, if we have a wildly fast tempo in like the Hammerclavier Sonata, um, you know, present that as an interesting interpretation. Isn't this different? <laughs> it depends how you couch it in language. If we go around saying this is the right one and everybody should do this, uh, we're probably going to lose friends. <laughs> are musicians sometimes annoyed by the fact that you might that you might think a tempo should be much faster i can't play it at that speed <laughs> um, um, i wouldn't i wouldn't deign to tell a performer uh the particular um tempo i mean sometimes sometimes there has to be a compromise um and it can be really interesting i mean the case of shostakovich 
Shostakovich's Shostakovich was very particular about tempo markings in his scores, but then we go to recordings of him playing. They're nearly always faster, Mass- <laughs> massively so, by you know, sort of 20, 20 beats a minute faster or something like that, and more. And then you've got a question of okay, which one, which one is better? You know, if you sort of believe in the real authority of the composer, the recording surely is a vital document, and that's so different to the score. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's an interesting. <laughs> it's one to think about. I would hope performers would take precedence and sort of think about, you know, what's what's the best for our interpretation. Well, one thing that musicologists do is musical analysis. Does this play any role in performance? Is, is there a pra- is there a practical use for musical <laughs> analysis, or is it just or is it just an intellectual exercise like mathematics? <laughs> Wow. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> music analysis is an intellectual exercise. To, to sort of clarify, listeners might know, well, perfectly might well know music analysis as well. But if you don't know, um, this includes aspects of things like music theory. So that's, you know, the building blocks of music, the idea of key, harmony, texture, form. And analysis goes a little bit further than that, goes towards interpretation. That interpretation, there can be many, many different strands of that. It could be sort of how is this really put together? What's the real structure of this? It could be, what's this piece trying to communicate? That question clearly has some sort of influence for performance. What is, what's trying to be communicated here? The one about structure as well relates to performance. If we think about a structure, a clear indicator of structure might be repeating themes. So the classic sonata structure is all about themes and when they repeat. The relationship between them might very well inform performance in something with a really long extended sonata form. I don't know, the Liszt B minor sonata, a very, very complex, um, multi-dimensional sonata form, to use the analytical term. Um, that can really inform performance about how performers might highlight, might stress, bring in particular themes. That's a classic example of analysis informing um, performance. I'd also suggest the complete opposite as well, that um, performance should should really inform analysis as well. It's a classic criticism of analysis that if I come up with a complicated, I don't know, overs- oversight of, of Shostakovich or something, and then somebody will say, well, yes, but can we really hear that? Can we, <laughs> can, we, can we hear that in performance? Well, I'm interested chatting with performers of, okay, what do you think is really going on here? What do you think is the most important line? Where do you think this, this feels like it's going? What do you think they're trying to say here? And the performer interpretation is just as important, actually. Performance should inform analysis in lots of ways. You're, you're a vital connection between performer, composer and musicologist as well in that sort of triangle. Yes, it can be interesting, I should add, to work with living composers. If I analyse their music and we disagree, I don't really know, <laughs> I, I don't really know what the middle ground is. Um, you'd be surprised how often that comes up. <laughs> they weren't aware of something that they were doing perhaps well it not... could be that they weren't aware of some some relationship that you've that you've spotted yeah more often is that i disagree with their analysis which normally i tr- i try to quite quietly put that and not sort of talk about that too much <laughs> do you defer always defer to the uh, to a living composer? Quite, quite right yeah yeah <laughs> Well, your own research interests involve music written behind the Iron Curtain. Do you feel it's particularly important for musicologists to promote music that was overlooked for non-musical reasons, whether that be political or cultural? That's a good question. Um, Yeah, so so my music broadly is on Russian and East European music, 19th century onwards. But especially, I suppose, most recently had been on the composer Mieczysław Weinberg, born in Poland and then um, fled uh, in the Second World War to, to the Soviet Union. 
And his music was, yes, was neglected, was sort of informally banned at one point in the Soviet Union, as you've heard in a previous podcast, edition of this podcast, I should add. Um, and yeah, Weinberg was imprisoned. His his uh, parents and sister were murdered in the Holocaust in Poland. It's a particularly moving personal story. For, for non-musical reasons, we see this kind of banning because of anti-Semitism in, in the USSR. His music was sort of not widely celebrated. And I passionately believe in this. You know, it's writing a historical wrong. But I also am, am wary, I should add. I think Weinberg's music is, is of a very high quality, I should add. I want to celebrate that as well. I don't want the story to become the reason we listen to it, if that makes sense. I think we've still got to be interested and we've still got to feel passionate about the music for its own value. The story, of course, adds value to it and it's interesting and in many ways it's what brings people to this music. But I passionately hope that in lots of cases where, where you know, composers have been neglected for, for no fault of their own, that the music should be allowed to speak for itself as well. Yeah, but do we do we want to separate the music and the historical context it's written in? I mean, a lot of the why we enjoy someone's music might be the story of their life. I mean, a classic example of well, we appreciate Beethoven's late music because we understand the story of his deafness and his struggle and rah rah rah. So, do we want to do that? Do we want to take these things apart and try and just say, oh well, just let's just listen to the best music or the music that's most interesting and just get rid of the historical context? So there's a terrific book on this, which I'm going to recommend. Sorry, that's an academic's uh, tried and tested, tried and tested thing to respond to a question. Um, the Beethoven syndrome by Mark Evan Bonds talks about the historical evolution of this, of the idea that the music is either about the bio biography or is somehow intrinsically linked with it. And the Beethoven deafness is a really good example because it's it's persuasive. There's there's no evidence in the music for this. It's just we assume that this is a sort of given. I mean, other composers went deaf while composing. Uh, Smetner, I believe, uh, is a classic example of this, but we don't really talk about him in the same way. And other composers with blindness, you know, thinking about disability in composition. And I mean, one example might be Shostakovich, for example, of linking biography to peace, um, because it's there's an immense scholarly debate about Shostakovich's political leanings. He certainly suffered in the Soviet Union and he was made to be miserable and f probably feared for his life at different times. That doesn't necessarily mean the music is about that, for instance. It's a great story and it brings us into it, but it doesn't mean the music is necessarily about those things. We might think about those when we listen. I'm not quite advocating that we completely separate them out, um, probably because I'd be putting myself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but just because there's a great story with a piece or a composer doesn't mean the music is 100% about that thing, if that makes sense. There's still elements of the music that are, that are separate to it, if that makes sense. We should perhaps focus on the music first, and if there's a great story behind it, then we can add that in, but the focus should always be on musical quality first and foremost. I, I think we should still have them together, really. Um, and, you know, we're, we're capable of thinking of both without linking them all of the time. Not all of the time, because, you know, in biography, you know, composer X meets composer Y... They exchange ideas and there is influence. That is a musical thing. But it's interesting to think about the balance, if that makes sense. And some people may not want to have any biographical context. I mean, a lot of people enjoy the classical era music because it seems to seemingly free of any sort of political context. It's lovely, it's clean, it's, uh, the textures are nice. You know, we, They don't want the uh, political story. They just want to listen to a nice sonata form, symphony or concerto or sonata. Yeah, and quite right too. Uh, I, I absolutely understand uh, that... 
uh, that desire. And to be honest, I, I passionately have that desire for many, many things as well. Uh, my enjoyment of Scarlatti sonatas. I don't think there's a great sort of political intrigue uh, that, that goes along with those. Um, doesn't make them any different, I don't think, to, to anything that does have these kind of biographical questions. And, you know, some, some pieces and composers will always have mystery and things like that. So, for example, um, the, the debate over, you know, a very serious question, the debate over Tchaikovsky's death... In a, in a musical logical point of view, there's it's there's a general assumption that we know um, that it's not going to have been suicide, for instance. There's a long-standing debate that maybe it could have been. There's a general viewpoint that it probably wasn't. But it's a great story. It's a great story to link to the Sixth Symphony. Yeah, with it, with its tremendously emotional final movement. I don't really want to deprive anybody of that that thought really we can listen to that movie and really think about these things and it is emotional i don't want to deny anybody that that emotion if that makes sense or you know listening to shostakovich's fifth symphony the finale and then think oh is this for or against the soviet union i don't want i don't want to deny anybody that listening experience well can you recommend some underappreciated russian or polish composers that you think should be better known oh great question uh, absolutely, I think so. So, I mean, one person I'm really doing a lot of work on at the moment is Grazina Batsevich. Uh, so she's Polish composer. She's a 20th century composer, uh, contemporary of people like uh, Witold Lutosławski, uh, and I suppose Andrzej Panufnik as well. She has a tremendous flexibility in her music. So initially she's writing, I suppose, what we might call neoclassicism. She studied with Nadia Boulanger, uh, and then moves broadly into something much more experimental something much more sort of finding her own style and towards the end of her career really almost avant-garde and kind of pushing the envelope so i think if we were going to hear anything it might be really great to hear some of something like her piano quintet and here's the first movement of grazina bachevich's piano quintet performed by vociak svitawa and the silesian quartet And some Weinberg as well? Yes. And again, a composer I love to promote everybody I talk to. Uh, Mirtiswav Weinberg, who I wrote my PhD on. I've got a book on. Uh, and a fantastic recording uh, of his Kaddish Symphony. Here's the first movement of Weinberg's 21st Symphony, a Kaddish, uh, performed by City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Merga Grajinita Tillar. Thank you. 
And Weinberg is an example of somebody who has a, who's had a lot of scholarly work done on and is now seeing recordings and seeing performances. So it's proof that this does eventually filter down, perhaps. Yes, I mean, I think the Weinberg revival is 99% due to the performers. He's been extremely lucky to have people like Milka Grosinitatila, Gidon Kramer, these phenomenal artists take up the mantle of his music. And yes, there's a lot of scholarly work, um, brilliant people, um, Verena Mogul, David Fanning, um, Denota Kvistelanka, these are scholars who've really done a lot of work on Weinberg's music. Um, but it's the performers that make it reach audiences. It helps that he, he had his uh, centenary in 2019, so it's always good concert programming to program around anniversaries and things like that. But it seems like he's really found his moment. It's made it interesting for my career because I go around talking about canon. And ironically, the composer that I talk so much about has kind of really found his place. It, it does happen. It's, the canon is not immutable. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, playing devil's advocate, Dan, is there a danger that promoting composers for non-musical reasons, even if they are well-intentioned, this does end up diluting the quality of the music we hear, and in the long run, it might put people off classical music? Well, if I respond as devil's advocate... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, a harsh, it's a harsh reality um, that there's no such thing as objective musical quality. There's just music that we enjoy or music that we like, and it might be sentimental to say that, um, but, you know, that's valuable still. Measurements of musical quality are personal, and it's okay that it's personal. And we can still place value on that sub, on those judgments, and we can still listen to experts who say, you know, I've studied this for 50 years, and I believe this to be very, very good. And historical judgments as well, you know. For 200 years, many people have believed Beethoven symphonies to be extremely good, and we should celebrate that, and we should enjoy that music. It doesn't mean, you know, that these kind of judgments don't matter. Anyone is, I suppose, free to say that music outside the off the beaten path is inferior. You're free to say that. But you, you, I don't think you can tell anybody. Nobody should. A musicologist, a critic, an informed listener. Um, nobody can argue for certain that, it's, that you should stop anybody listening to something. I think having a healthy appetite for exploration and getting to know more. There's always more. There's always room to learn. And in my opinion, you know, we shouldn't be trying to limit anyone of that. So I don't think we're sort of diluting music. We're making music better. We're, we're finding more music. Yes, you're not taking away the great masters. You're, no. you're trying to add, add, to the, add to the solar system of these, uh, add more planets to the solar system. Yeah, and any time a, a scholar says, oh, thinking about canon is bad, just like I said earlier, we're not taking anything away from Wagner, Rossini, Beethoven. I want to still play their music. I love their music. <laughs> I want to think about it in a different way. And that's that's perhaps challenging in some ways, but I'm not trying to stop anybody enjoying any music whatsoever. I'm trying to bring in more. As you were talking about the canon, there's a middle ground between this radical idea of just getting rid of it all and, and at the same time doing nothing. There's a way of, we keep, the what's, we keep what's good and allow people to enjoy it, but at the same time uh, say that there's also this massive world out there that you can discover if you like, and it's all there available now at the, t at the click of a mouse. Yeah, and also I've got no illusions about myself as a scholar or any other scholars that we'll stop anybody listening to any music. Um, Wagner, Beethoven, Schubert, Mozart, these composers will always be there, I think. And it's tremendous music and we should enjoy it. Fantastic. Well, what are your current research projects and what future topics can we look forward to as videos on your YouTube channel? 
So I mentioned uh, the music of Grazina Batsevich. I'm working on a project analysing her music, so that's very in-depth, getting to sort of mathematical, scientific-type analyses, really getting to grips with... Because she wrote so many different styles. You've got to think, what brings this all together? How can one person do... And I'm trying to bring that in. Uh, on a more general note, I'm doing a, a very large book, uh, which is on the idea of socialist realism in music. Listeners might be familiar with this from sort of Shostakovich, maybe Prokofiev, but it's an enormous phenomenon across the 20th century and I'm exploring that. On the YouTube channel Cult of Musicology, I'm really keen on trying to build up an audience with with young people, 16, 17 year olds, but also people who might be thinking about returning to university, people, mature students, because of course there's always time, as I said, we're always learning. Mature students, there's never a better time to, to take up uh, education and things like that, but people thinking about music university courses, and I'm also keen to build up, we've got a series on the channel which is Meet a Musicology of me interviewing um, all sorts of different scholars, people from diverse backgrounds, people working on un really unusual types of music, music that you wouldn't maybe first think is being done in an academic context, but of course it is, and we're trying to build on that as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I'll look forward to your next videos. Thanks so much, Paul. I look forward to more of the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the podcast was produced by Matt Groom. Thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.